Our Father, we commit ourselves to you for this day. We thank you, we thank you for the beauty of the day, for the beauty of your holiness. Lord, for the great hope you have placed within us as we look forward to that time when we will be in heaven with its great beauty and we're certain beyond the ability of our minds in our present state even to comprehend. We look forward, Lord, to that fellowship with you, that perfect fellowship with one another. As we look at Christian fellowship as it is here now, uh, it's, it's wonderful, and yet to know how much more perfect it will be when our facades are gone and when we are in a state of perfection to fellowship together. Now, Father, I pray that the Word of God, as we study it today, will be a real blessing to our hearts. It will be an encouragement. It will convict us where we need conviction. And, Lord, we will be people of the book, people who read and study and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. You should have page 21 before you. The new, it's a new outline that we're working with this morning. I'd like to read, beginning at Genesis chapter 6, verse 13. Genesis 6, 13. That God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, and you shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it, the length of the ark, 300 cubits, the breadth, 50 cubits, and the height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and finish it to a cubit from the top, and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I... Even I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And, every, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds after their kind, of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind shall come to you to keep them alive. And as for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did." Last week we looked at the first few verses that we just read here this morning and we studied a little bit about the uh, verses which talk about making the ark of gopher wood and putting rooms in it and covering it with pitch and all of those details we looked at last week. And we realized from that study that this was a very large vessel probably not constructed as artists tend to render it, uh, but nevertheless very seaworthy and capable of withstanding rather significant uh, tidal and, and wave movements. We noted at the end last time that the single door into the side of the ark is much like the single way by which we enter heaven. Jesus said, I am the door. And we must enter into that eternal ark of safety by that door, just as the only way into this ark was that single door in the side. I don't think it's too hard for us to imagine the reaction of the people of the countryside and of Noah's relatives as he began to build this big boat. He was not near, apparently, any significant body of water. At least there's no indication that he was. I'm sure that at some time or another, they had almost everybody had seen a river flood. And if we are in the valley of the Tigris-Euphrates, which many assume uh, is where this took place, but there's nothing to, to say that that was where it took place. 
Uh, obviously, they would have from time to time seen floods as the waters came down from the Anatolian highlands into the plains of Iraq. But when Noah announced that God said that there's going to be a worldwide flood, I'm sure they laughed him to scorn. <laughs> Noah, you've lived too long. You've lost some screws here and there. We'll just humor you, though, and we'll watch you build this vessel, and, and we'll take your money to help you build it. Uh, but it's obviously a foolish idea. It's not really terribly different today, is it? Many people laugh evangelical Christians to scorn if they literally believe that Jesus Christ is coming again, or if, they literally, if we literally believe that there's only one way by which we can attain heaven, if we literally believe that we are sinners needing salvation. We're laughed at. The scholars in the great universities who, quote, know better, of course, will tell us that man isn't sinful. After all, he's just the highest product of the evolutionary process so far. What's sin anyway? Well, the fact that no one besides Noah and his family entered that ark is proof of the fact that the preaching fell on deaf ears. It reveals to us the degree to which God had been forsaken. I mean, these people all came from a root from, a fa from family roots where there were individuals who knew God. And yet these people acted as if God was simply a figment of the imagination. It proves to us the degree to which carnality and unbelief dominated the thinking of the entire human race. And you think about that for a minute. Carnality and unbelief. Boy, does that sound like today. It, you know, everywhere you turn, it's the way it is. In verse 17 of this passage, as we read it this morning, God further clarifies his plans, that is, clarifies them to Noah. He was going to send a great flood of water to wipe out the human race. And all the non-marine animals, except whatever was in the ark, they were all going to be destroyed. Now, the uniqueness of the flood is indicated by the words used here. First of all, the term flood of waters, 9a on your outline at the top up there. The Hebrew word used here for flood is unique to this flood. It is used only in reference to the flood of Noah. The word for flood in this passage is used only for the Noahic flood in Scripture. There are three or four other Hebrew words that are commonly used in the Old Testament to refer to normal floods or torrents. For example, and we won't turn to the passage, but in the first chapter of Nahum and in the eighth verse, in reference to Nineveh, which, of course, the prophet Nahum was railing against in that uh, prophecy. He says of the Neo-Assyrian capital, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of it and its site. An overflowing flood. It's a different word completely from the word used here in this flood, uh, about this flood. It's a, flu uh, it's a word that refers to a, a normal flood, a river that goes over its banks and inundates a valley. That's the word which Nahum used. The flooding of the Tigris River, which apparently undercut the walls of Nineveh, so the walls fell in one place and the enemy was able to break into the city and destroy it, the, the, the Babylonians, uh, was just a small-scale flood. Here we're talking about a cataclysm of worldwide magnitude. Now, the word used here is used in Psalm 29. Outside of Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 11, the only time this word for flood is used is in the 29th Psalm. Now let's read that Psalm for a moment. It's a very, very interesting and powerful Psalm. Psalm 29, let's, let's read the whole Psalm. It's short. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, 
Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord, of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon, and he makes Lebanon skip like a calf, and Syrian like a young wild ox. That's Mount Hermon. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The, vo the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. Now notice verse 10. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Same word, babul, as is found in Genesis 6 through 11. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. The use of that word means that this psalm is referring back to the Noahic flood when it says that the Lord sat as king at the flood, at the flood that destroyed the human race. The Lord sat as sovereign ruler. It is he who brought the flood. It is he who brought the judgment. It is he who saved Noah and his family. Now, we find this is supported, this idea of this being a unique flood is supported also in the New Testament. Let's turn for a moment, if you will, to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, verse 26. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. The New Testament also has different words for flood, as does the Old Testament. This word in this passage is the Greek word kataklusmos, from which we would get what you expect, yeah, cataclysm. There is a much more common word in the New Testament used for flood, plemura. And it's the one that, for example, Jesus used in, we won't turn to Luke chapter 6, but in, in the 48th verse, when he is speaking of those who hear the words of Jesus and act upon them, he says in that passage that the one who does that is like the man building his, a house who dug deep and laid a foundation upon the rock, and when the flood arose and the torrent burst against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. The flood there is the common Greek word for flood and is not the word kataklusmos used in this passage by Jesus in reference to the Noahic flood. So when you look at the specific word used in the Hebrew in the Old Testament, the word used in the New Testament, it makes it quite clear that the flood of Noah was not just a common flood. Sir Leonard Woolley in the 1920s, a great English archaeologist, uh, set about to, to try to discover the evidences of the flood of Noah, so he did a lot of digging over there in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, and he came up with a place where there was 22 feet of sediment that obviously had been laid down in a great flood, and he says, there is the evidence of the Noahic flood. It was obviously just a flood in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. And as far as the civilization then was concerned, that was a cataclysm in Sir Leonard Woolley's idea, uh, mind anyway, because it destroyed the civilization of the valley. But, you know, to me, it makes no sense. Why bother rescuing the animals if you're just blotting out a little spot here? That's an awful lot of fooling around to do uh, to save animals that wouldn't be destroyed anyway. Verse 18 of Genesis 6 makes a very, very important promise. That is, God makes a promise which is recorded in that verse. He promised to establish a covenant with Noah. Now, a covenant is a binding agreement, a contract, if you will, between two parties. 
This is the very first mention of a covenant in Scripture between man and God. But it is far from the last, right? And, of course, you remember reading of many covenants throughout the Old Testament. The Hebrew word, which is here translated covenant, is used 275 times in the Old Testament. So, obviously, God makes frequent reference to covenant. Now, not all 275 times refers to a new covenant. Of course not. Uh, keeps referring back to covenants previously made. <clears throat> God would make several covenants, and together they would be called the Old Covenant. And we have in the Scripture the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament, the New Testament, as we study it. Now, some covenants, such as this particular one, were unilateral. That is, God proclaimed this covenant. He says, I am going to do this regardless of what man does. And as we're going to see, uh, that's true of this particular covenant. Now, the covenant is described in the ninth chapter of, of uh, Genesis, and when we get to the ninth chapter, we'll study it in detail at that time. Basically, however, it was a covenant whereby God bound himself to never again destroy mankind with a great flood. Regardless of what mankind did, he would never again destroy the earth with a great flood. That was the covenant that he made with Noah, sort of in a nutshell. Huh. True. He would not do that. Other covenants are bilateral. That is, God proclaims a covenant, and he says, I will do this if you do that. In other words, they're conditional. If the children of Israel, God's people, would do what they, God commanded them to do, then God said, I will do this. For example, we won't turn there. In Exodus chapter 19, God said that if Israel will obey his voice and keep their side of the covenant, then they will be God's possession forever. That's a bilateral covenant. And there are several of those in Scripture. So you have God saying, I will promise to do this if you covenant to do this. Actually, as we've already noted, much of the teaching in Scripture is conditional relative to believers. There are many who say, well, boy, I committed myself wholly to God and I prayed for this to happen and it didn't happen. Obviously, the word is not true. Well, the Scripture teaches us much about prayer. And uh, I think there's a lot we don't yet know about prayer. Uh, we, we think because we pray in Jesus' name and, and we say according to your will, then, of course, you know, it ought to happen. But there's a whole lot more to it than that, it seems. And a lot of it has to do with our standing before God and the rightness of our relationship with him. And so it is from Genesis through Revelation. But this particular covenant was unilateral. God would never again destroy the human race with a flood. Now, why does God promise to Noah that he will make a covenant with him? Well, I, I think certainly it was to be as a reward for his faithfulness up to this point, for his obedience, for his trust. God rewards faithfulness. I mean, that's the kind of a father we have, a heavenly father who knows how to give good gifts. And God rewards us for our faithfulness, not that that should be the sole purpose for our faithfulness is to get some kind of reward. It should be because we love him. But he encourages us, just as we, right? Our child does something right, and uh, we're flabbergasted in the first place, but no, uh, our child does something right, and, and, you know, we tend to reward that child with a hug, with a kiss, with a commendation, uh, does, does something out of the ordinary, and we may give that child a gift. Well, God does that. And he knows us far better than we know ourselves. And so that God gave to Noah this promise. He said, when this disaster is over, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Oh, a promise? directly from God to me, a specific 
relationship between God and me? That's something for someone who literally believed in God. And of course, it was to encourage him in maintaining his faithful walk. If we had no promise in Scripture of eternal life, how many of us would be really committed to being as faithful as we are? If our hope was only in the possibility somehow there might be something good after we die, well, look at the world. So many people have a religion just like that. Well, if I do this and I do that, then maybe it's possible somehow I might make it to heaven. That was Martin Luther's problem, one of the reasons why he was so disturbed as an Augustinian monk. And finally God met him and the light turned on, you might say, and he understood the truth. God puts this before us so that we have a goal to press towards. Even as Paul said, a press towards the, you know, press towards the mark of the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, you see, God knew what Noah was about to go through, and Noah did not. Noah knew he had to build this big ark, and he knew God had said a flood was coming, but he had never experienced a flood like this before, neither had the world, for that matter. But God knew that the odds that Noah faced were going to be very, very great. Sometimes we don't really look behind the scenes of this passage of Scripture. Think about it for a moment. The whole world was already safely on its way to hell. So Satan had it made. I got everybody in my pocket. Everybody has sold his soul to me, except Noah. So I'm going to get Noah. So where was, where was Satan? Walking to and fro over the surface of the earth, as he later would say when he goes before God in the first chapter of Job? No. He was right there with Noah. He was where the action was, and that's where the action was. I think the forces of hell were turned on Noah to an extent we don't even understand because they had no reason to be anywhere else. <laughs> it was already well in hand. It's sort of like on a battlefield. If you're winning on every front, you've got too many troops on the sides in which you're crushing the enemy, what does the general do? Call them into the part where there still is a chance of losing. So it would be with Satan. Can we really imagine the intensity of the spiritual warfare here? We usually think, yeah, well, Noah had to put up with a little laughter and people calling him names and thinking that he was out of his tree. I think it was a whole lot more than that. I think doubts came into Noah's mind. I mean, think about it for a minute. If you were Noah, you had absolutely no one to talk to except, of course, your three sons, your wife, and their three daughters-in-law. And the Scripture never does say, and these eight were righteous. It only says Noah was righteous. We hope and assume by extension that they also were. But who did he have to go to for counsel? Who, who did he have to talk to for encouragement? You, know, you and I have each other. And, and we think more or less the same, hopefully. And, and we're going to encourage one another in our Christian walk. And we have thousands of books and radio programs and television programs and churches where you can go and get built up to be built up in the Lord. Noah had no such place to go. He had himself and the Word of God that had come to him, probably audibly. I think that the spiritual warfare showed up not only in uh, psychological manifestations, but probably in physical manifestations also. I'm sure there were points at which he said, well, I don't know which way to go next on building this ark. Or a big piece of timber falls and somebody gets hurt. I mean, who knows what all happened? It, the Scripture is silent about all that. But put yourself into decades and decades of constructing this large boat. You've got to think things happened all the time, as they do on many construction sites, especially without the equipment we have today in order to do the work. I think it's doubtful that any of us have or ever will face the intensity of spiritual opposition that Noah faced. 
I think you could put Noah right in the same category with Job. And as you read through the book of Job and you see all that Job faced, I, I don't think Job faced it as, as great a trial even as Noah did. I think only Jesus Christ experienced more intensity of opposition than Noah because Satan knew he had to pull out every single stop with Jesus Christ. Noah had a very, very difficult time. So what does God do? Just stand up there and say, well, I hope Noah makes it through. No. He talks to him. He gives him a promise of a covenant. He tells him that, you are, that he is righteous. He says, when this is all over, I'm going to speak to you face to face and I'm going to give you this grand, grand covenant that gives Noah strength and resolve, commitment inside to push on. And when the enemy tried to derail and to discourage Noah, which he must have done intensely day by day, by both subtle things, a little whispering behind his back, you know, and brazen uh, opposition. Somebody comes up and wags his finger under Noah's nose and tells him that, you know, he ought to go to the funny farm. Attacks upon his faith, attacks upon his motives, attacks upon his hope, his character, his sanity, all of these things. Yet, in spite of this, in the words of Matthew Henry, every blow of his axes and hammers was a call to repentance. And you know that call went totally unheeded. Not one single person was converted by the preaching of the preacher of righteousness, Noah. How many pastors today would remain long in the pulpit if absolutely nobody responded to the ministry of the Word? Absolutely nobody. <laughs> the church of eight. It's pretty small. Let's look again at uh, verses 19 to 21 of the sixth chapter. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. You, you think maybe that could have been left out, right? <laughs> Who needs all the creepy things? Two of every kind shall come to you to keep them alive. And as for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself. It shall be food for you and for them. Noah's instructed to bring the animals into the ark for preservation. Now just the practicality of the matter, you'd you think probably Noah would have had a lot of thoughts in his mind. I'm going to be cooped up in this vessel with all them critters. This is going to be a zoo, literally. <laughs> Several important points, I think, for us to note here, and I've listed them there under point uh, 11 on your outline. First of all, except for the clean animals, which he doesn't elucidate on this, at this moment, and we'll get to that when we get to chapter 7, except for the clean animals, only one pair of each kind of animal was to be admitted into the ark. The, the so-called unclean animals, we'll see. Now, this was adequate, of course, for reproducing the kind. You might say, but what if somebody stepped on one of them? <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I mean, talk about the opportunity to eliminate species in a hurry. You didn't like that particular kind? <laughs> well... <clears throat> Now, what we have to realize, of course, is that God preserved each one individually. If God says, bring a male and bring a female, and that's all there is of this kind, you know God is going to preserve them if he wants them preserved. And he'll keep the buffalo from stomping on the mouse and, you know, the cockroach from being eaten by the lizard. Uh, somehow he'll... <laughs> Why? I don't know, but... <laughs> Anyway, he, he, will, he will preserve, preserve them. A second important point is the use of the term kind here. I, I personally believe 
that the term kind is not synonymous with the term species. Now we have to realize, and, and you know, I've talked to people who almost seem like the, uh, you know, the kingdom phylum class order family genus species uh, into which the whole living world is divided today as if that came down from God. And that's the way it's always been through history. No, that was, that was an invention beginning with Carolus Linnaeus, 18th century Swedish biologist and botanist who, who began that particular program and, and then it was further refined by other scientists downtime. So it's, it's something that has been created by man. As man looks out at the creatures of the world, he, he develops his uh, means of pigeonholing them so that he can you know, learn about them better and try to determine what's related to what. And of course, modern uh, taxonomy and all of this is largely based upon the underlying foundation of a belief in evolution. Well, what really is kind in Genesis? Is kind in Genesis mean that an English sparrow and a house sparrow and this sparrow and that sparrow and the other sparrow and 45 sparrows later, you're talking about 45 different sparrows were kept on the ark? Not necessarily. The kind could just be sparrow. And from that we have the dozens of different kinds of sparrows. I mean, they're very, very close to each other. Now, one has a little patch here and the other one has the patch there. Um, otherwise, they look identical many of them. We have to remember that the classification system that is used today is arbitrary. It's not iron, cast in iron. It's not so that you can show, I mean, we've got, you know, you end up with, well, wasn't it just recently somebody had to kill a liger because it bit some girl's arm? Well, the lion is one animal and the tiger is another, yet you can have a liger or a tie-in, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and, you know, you have this kind of thing happening and you know, the mule. And even though sometimes those things are shown to be infertile, they aren't always. And I've seen pictures of a baby mule born from a mule. And so what is kind? Person, I think, was broader than species. And therefore, I don't think you had to have so many animals on the ark as you would today if you had to bring in every single little species that you have out there. Thirdly, the volume of the ark. The volume of the ark, as we've already noted, was more than adequate for stabling all of these animals. Especially, would that be true, if you were to use the larger cubit? We have just computed it, as most evangelical scholars do, using the very smallest possible cubit. That way you can't be accused of exaggeration, but if you use the larger cubit, I mean, you've got a gigantic vast vessel. You more than double the volume just by going from 18 inches to 24 inches for the cubit. One and a half million cubic feet is a lot of room. Three and a half million is a lot more room. In either case, we're talking about plenty of room for all of the animals, the kinds, and their food uh, for a year. Um, Henry Morris in his study was saying, well, if you take the major, I mean, you take the, let's, let's use modern species, and let's include extinct species that we know about, that when you add them all up, uh, of just animals and birds, you'd only have 75,000 individuals, and that's giving a lot of pluses there for the spares. Of course, that's not counting insects, but you, know, you get a lot of insects in a pretty small space. It's estimated today there are well over a million species of insects. Well, you know, two million insects. <laughs> take a lot of room for that, right? I don't know how many million you could put in this room. I hope we don't ever have to, <laughs> but, you know, doesn't take much space, and they don't eat much either, <clears throat> normally, especially if you only got a pair of them. Fourthly, uh, Wickham and Morris, in their book, The Genesis Flood, postulate that most of the animals may have gone into some type of hibernation. 
Now, the Scripture doesn't say this. It's obviously just speculation. But there's no reason why that couldn't have been so. First of all, the environment would have been darker and cooler than they had been accustomed to. Suddenly they're enclosed and there's just this one skylight running around the top and when it was raining the clouds would have been darkened the sky and, and all the uh, coolness that came along with the darkened sky. The animals might have just thought, hey, it's a good time to go night-night, you know. And uh, God could have, you know, the whole thing's a miracle to start with. So what's one more miracle amongst all the miracles? If God were to put the animals to sleep, it would sure cut down on the shoveling and the feeding. You know, they would have to go along. Probably also reduce the chance of injury. Somebody stepping on somebody else. Uh, as I say, it's purely speculation, and I've read some commentators who, referring to that specific thing, says, well, there's no reason to believe that uh, because the Bible makes no reference to anything like that. He says, bring the food along for them to eat which meant obviously they were going to do some eating, which probably meant they were awake. Well, whatever the case. Fifthly, the climate was probably still fairly regular worldwide. Even though this was long after the fall, it's very probable that before the Noahic flood, the climate of the world was pretty regular. Wherever you went, it would be pretty close to the same. That being so, probably the animals, although the animals would be dispersed over a large area of the earth, you probably would not come to find genetic isolation so much yet. Uh, you probably would discover that ecological isolation according to latitude and altitude and continents had not yet occurred. In other words, kangaroos were not just in Australia and giraffes were not just in Africa, that probably within the range of a short distance from where Noah was building his vessel, maybe a few hundred miles, were some examples of every species of animal. That, that would eliminate, of course, having to tromp to Australia to bring back some kangaroos and platypi and uh, koala bears and, and whatever. Many try to use the argument of the fact that you find, like on Australia, only certain kinds of animals, which obviously indicates that Australia was cut off by water eons ago and that these animals evolved into what they are uh, in that isolated condition. And, you know, whatever animals you've got certain places in the world, that didn't have to happen then, didn't have to exist before the flood. I think we'll discover, and I think scientists who are really are honest, are discovering that things happened a whole lot more quickly than they ever assumed. As I mentioned to you before, and as you probably know from your, what you've read yourself, they're discovering on the island of Circe off the coast of, of uh, Iceland and up here in, uh, off of Mount St. Helens in Spirit Lake that conditions are changing there and, and conditions are developing for changes that they thought took millions of years and is happening in a decade. Uh, they, I think we have to realize that science is so shot through with the whole belief in uniformitarianism and the need for evolution that they postulate great lengths of time for things that have never been proven to require that length of time. Because if you use the idea of, of mutation, pushing mutation through the sieve of natural selection, and, and you try to find a beneficial mutation of which there are hardly ever any, uh, and, and yet let that one build on the next one to improve the quality of a creature, then probably you've got to have eons of time. But there is no proof of that whatsoever. And it's very probable that things transformed much more quickly than ever has been believed by your evolutionary scientist. Sixthly, verse 20 that we read seems to indicate that the animals came to Noah and that Noah didn't have to put out a search squad and hire a bunch of zookeepers to go out and try to catch animals all over for thousands of miles around and bring them back. Can you imagine what that would have been like? No railroads, no airplanes, no tracks, no uh, you know, injections to put the animals to sleep. Just try to drag a tiger and its mate 
uh, 500 miles across the landscape, you know, in the back of your cart. <laughs> Probably not. Obviously, even giving the fact that Noah, let, let's say he had a century to do this, what good would that do? <laughs> the animals would be dead. Of course, you could say, well, he just kind of raised them and they had babies and raised them and they had babies and it was third or fourth generation down from the original tigers he caught that were on the ark. Well, this gets really complicated. But if we believe that God drew them, well, what does it say in verse 20? It says, of the birds and the animals and the creeping things of the ground, two of every kind shall come to you, it says. It's much easier to believe of millions of angels out there shepherding the animals. They're going for reasons they don't know. A lot of times animals migrate and they don't know why they're migrating. They just have a sense that they need to go here in order to find something better. So the animals were shepherded by invisible forces, by the angelic beings, and brought to the ark. Why not? Seems logical. After all, we're talking about one miracle piled on another miracle. So, what's the problem? Seventhly, and, and finally, G, 11G on your outline. Some of the insects, some of the birds, and basically all of the marine life were able to survive outside the ark. I mean, think about it for a minute. The great flood's going to come, and... Don't think of this as a, as a peaceful rising of the rivers. You know, pitter-patter of little raindrops on the roof and slowly the waters rise, no? As we get to the passage, it tells us that the fountains of the deep broke up. Why would they break up? Probably with, uh, let's, let's put it in modern terminology, plate tectonics, you know, continental drift. The continents were starting to move and to break up. Pangaea was fracturing. And uh, the great reservoirs of water were bursting forth to the surface of the ground. And, and I, I perceive of this flood as moving with tremendous force over parts, many parts of the earth and whole forests just being leveled. You seen the pictures of uh, what happened up in that bay in Alaska, what, 20, 30 years ago? when the mountainside and earthquake came down and threw this gigantic wave up in the bay and the waves sheared the trees off 1,700 feet above bay level on the other side of the bay. Sheared the trees like a reaper. I think that's what happened here. As these waters burst forth, they, burst forth, they just sheared the forests. And so the, 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 the sea would be littered with thousands and millions of logs trees and all kinds of trash floating in the surface. And a lot of things could, could keep alive. People wouldn't last long in that. But a lot of insects and other kinds of things could last on all that flotsam, it would seem. And certainly the marine animals were not taken in the ark. ark he was not told to build an aquarium, you know, inside and put all the fish. They were in the water. There's going to be plenty of water for them. <laughs> More water than he had ever known before. Now, we do know, though, from the rock record that the violence of this was so great that large numbers of marine life were just obliterated. There are rock records that show thousands of fish were wiped out almost instantaneously because even pressed in the rock, they're shown with their... <laughs> I mean, their fins are all like this, you know, and their eyes are like this. <laughs> Obviously, it was a shock <laughs> to them. And billions of these creatures. Again, let me recommend a book to you. It's not a Christian book, but it sure supports the Noah Flood, and that's uh, Emmanuel Velikovsky's Earth in Upheaval. If you ever get a chance to read it, it's fascinating reading. For me, anyway, it was just read it from one end to the other, hardly put the thing down, because he has all this piles of information. Now, he's not a believer. He's not a Christian. He's a Russian Jew. And the only thing he was really concerned about was proving that uh, the Old Testament was true and that the disasters which you see in the Old Testament 
uh, were really happened. He tries to explain how they did, and he tries to bring in some kind of a mechanism to show how the Red Sea parted, and how the children of Israel saw this cloud and followed it all through the wilderness, and you don't have to accept any of that because his mechanism's, you know, ridiculous. But the proof that he comes up with to show that this world has been through a gigantic cataclysm is amazing. I mean, he talks about a cave in Britain in which crunched into the rocks there are bones of Arctic animals and equatorial animals all in the same cave. And he said probably crocodiles and mammoths didn't live side by side. And yet they're all crunched in one cave. How did that happen? Well, obviously in a great flood these animals would all be stirred up uh, worldwide. And as they filtered out, as their bodies became bloated and finally began to decay and sink down, they'd end up, who knows where, mixed up together. But anyway, onto the ark, through these cataclysmic activities, were to be brought enough individuals to repopulate the world. Just think the advantage Noah had. Of course, the disadvantage was God told him to preserve all these animals, but, you know, he could have been a person to pick and choose when they started going off the ark. Because <laughs> he said, not you, <laughs> you stay here. <laughs> uh, and of course, thus picked what survived, but that wasn't his option. In verse 22, we read a really fantastic statement. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Though people of the antediluvian world considered Noah to be the greatest fool that had ever lived until the waters began to rise. And then he was obviously the most sage person on planet Earth. But this passage proves that he was one of the greatest men of faith of all history. Let me just, you don't need to turn to it, but let me just, we've already read it before, but again, the words of the writer of Hebrew, Hebrews in reference to Noah, Hebrews 11, 7, by faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, it says, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to what? Faith an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. I mean, that little verse so sums up what it means to be a believer because it talks about faith and salvation and reverence and condemnation, all of these things in one single verse, proving to us that this was one of the greatest men who has ever walked the face of planet Earth. With the whole world against him, he clung to God's word. How many people do you know who would do that? Oh, under certain circumstances, in a small community, but when the whole world, not another soul outside of your immediate family, believed you were an idiot? Your cousins, your brothers, your sister, your parents, if they were still alive, well, his father wasn't alive for sure, uh, but others, people, I mean, he lived for 600 years before this happened. How many friends did he make in 600 years? And they all thought he was a total fool. His faith in obedi and obedience enabled him to become a true type of Christ. That is a savior of the human race. I think other than Jesus Christ himself, no other person who's lived on this planet has faced as much opposition as did the man Noah, as much adversity as did this great patriarch. But God, of course, encouraged him, and God spoke to him. You see, he didn't have the Bible. He couldn't turn to Genesis and read about himself yet, you know. He couldn't turn to the writings of Paul and get that encouragement that you and I can, can receive. We, we, he couldn't turn uh, and, and read there where Paul says that uh, 
all of these things you go through are, are just a, a mere passing shadow. It's just a momentary light affliction which pales before the eternal weight of glory. He couldn't read that passage because it hadn't been written yet. But the God who wrote that passage was Noah's God. And I think the passage, the scripture tells us seven different times when God spoke to Noah. Now, maybe that's the total number of times he spoke to Noah. I don't know. He may have spoken to Noah more often than that. But he spoke to Noah. He had, I believe, an audible word from the Creator because he had to, to keep his faith strong. And of course, as much as Satan focused his attention to try to tear him down, you can imagine God focused his attention to keep him strong. Because it was true of Noah as it is true of us, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And that's the only way Noah survived. And as the only reason we're here this morning, because without Noah, as without Adam, none of us would be here today. Next week, we're going to begin looking at chapter 7. Chapter 7 begins the description of the actual flood itself, tells of the coming of this great cataclysmos, cataclysm, that is going to impact the planet. And I, I trust as we look at it that the impact of the Scripture itself will help us to understand that this was not some minor little thing which occurred on the corner of the planet. Because I, you know, man has a certain nomadic characteristic about him, mankind. And, and to believe that from the time of Adam to the time of Noah, all the people had collected right there and were just living in the little Tigris-Euphrates Valley, if that's where it happened. And they were all just kind of packed in there waiting for the flood to come along and destroy them all. No. I think mankind was widely disseminated over the planet already. I mean, we're always wondering and wanting to know what's on the other side of that hill? Curiosity. The need for room. You know, as Hitler said, Lebensraum, living space. Give me Poland, give me Russia. So these would go out to find more space for themselves. I think mankind was very widely scattered. The continental condition or the situation of the continents today may not have been the situation of the continents then. We're going to read a little bit later that there is a passage in Scripture which says, and the world was divided in those days. And some think that's linguistic, some think that's continental, that actually it was the time that the continents were divided and separated and Pangaea became the seven continents as we know them today. Well, that's speculation, but it's a possibility. So many things are just not cut and dried for anyone to come along and, and basically say that your faith, based in the reality of this story, is, is crazy. Because to place one's faith in the, the word of science today is to place one's uh, uh, faith on a very slippery banana peel because 10 years from now they'll deny many of the things that they say today and say no this is the way it really is so our faith needs to be as Noah's faith was in the word of God